Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Check one, check two. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. <laughs> Will you forgive me if I actually leave my phone on vibrate? Because uh, my wife is pregnant and due literally really? any day. Oh my God. No kidding. If this vibrates, I might ruin your radio program. That's, but... No, it's fine. It's all worse. So recently but, I had a conversation wow. with this guy, Josh Four. Yeah. He's a journalist. Science journalist. And he told me about something that's been obsessing oh. him recently, this very odd experiment. Well, okay, so this is... Uh, <clears throat> One of the longest-running science experiments of all time, the pitch drop experiment. And you can actually see it online. How do I get to it? I just search for pitch drop. Pitch drop. All right. Pitch so when you go to this website, what you really see is uh, this funnel with some black stuff in it. And then uh, descending from the stem of the funnel is this little tendril of this black stuff. And at the end of that tendril is a little teardrop of this black stuff. And that's it. doesn't move, do anything. But according to Josh, there are pitch drop junkies all over the world. People who are just have got this open in the background on their on their web browser. And he says they all just sit there watching and waiting. And that's the thing. Once you understand what's going on here, you kind of can't look away. Okay, so here's what happened. In 1927, there is uh, this guy, Thomas Parnell, who is teaching physics at the University of Queensland in, in Australia. And he's trying to show his students that, um, well, I guess that things aren't always what they seem. Okay. Uh, and so he takes a chunk of this material called pitch. What's pitch? Okay, so pitch is a natural substance. In fact, this is actually really the question. What is pitch? Well, what does it look like? It's like... Uh, is it gooey? No, that's the thing. It's like a rock. You can break it with a hammer and it shatters into a million little pieces. But it's not a rock. It's a viscoelastic polymer. A viscoelastic polymer. Which means that over many, 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 many years, it moves. Really? So what he did was he melted a handful of pitch and poured it into a glass funnel. Mm. And once it had properly settled, he snipped the bottom of the funnel and waited. For what? Well, for it to drip. You mean drip like a faucet would drip? Yeah, but much, much more slowly. So 1930, Pluto is discovered. Bonnie and Clyde meet, fall in love, go on a crime spree, get killed by the police. 31, the Empire State Building is finished. No drip. 1933, the Nazis build their first concentration camp. Prohibition ends. It still hasn't drip? 35, Amelia Earhart flies solo across the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> You're kidding still me. Still no drip. 1936, 5 million barrels of cement turn into the Hoover Dam. No drip. <laughs> For eight years, this rock is slowly, slowly, slowly stretching into this dangling drop. And then, suddenly one day, eight years after he poured the damn thing into the funnel, in the tenth of a second, the blink of an eye, drip. The pitch breaks. Now, nobody's ever actually seen this happen. You mean it's never, the drop has never dripped? No, no. The drop has dripped eight times, and we're all due for the ninth drop to happen any day now. <laughs> so wait, why haven't they seen it? So imagine a, a science experiment, right, where the critical data that you want to gather happens in one-tenth of a second every 10 to 12 years. <laughs> it is really hard <laughs> To be there at that critical moment 
This fellow, Professor John Mainston, he's been watching it yes. religiously since January of 1961. For 50 years. I am still waiting to see this pitch drop. Just out of suspense, or is there some question here? Well, first of all, uh, during... Well, okay, the question is, at that moment when you this ever-elongating droplet gives way, what happens? If you've got the drop itself held by four little fibres, call them fibres... What breaks first? How does it break? And there are lots of people who, like me, are waiting to see whether we can capture that moment and see the way in which, from a mechanical point of view, it becomes imperative that the drop then fall. So, 1962. Mainston missed a drop in 62. Yeah. August 1970. Missed that one. Mm-hmm. April 1979. That one he looked at on a Friday, knew it was close. And thought, well, something might happen over the weekend. Came in on a Saturday. Saturday evening, checked the pitch drop. Nothing happening, I'm going home. And by the time I came in very early on the Monday morning, not having gone in on Sunday... It had fallen. Uh, then... 1988, he's standing right there. And I decided I need a cup of tea or something like that. Walked away, uh, came back. Oh, no. And lo and behold... He thinks he may have missed it by as, as little as 15 minutes. It had dropped. Now, Did you take your tea and throw it against the wall and rage? <laughs> yes. Well, yes, one becomes a bit philosophical about this. And um, I just said, oh, well, let, let's be patient. The next time... He installed a camera, and, yes. and and then and then 28 November 2000. Yes. What happened then? At the time, I was over on the other side of the world in London. Gets an email saying, Professor, this eighth drop, looking as though it might fall any time. We've been waiting 10 years for this. It's about to happen. Because it was like... I said, don't worry, we've got it covered. We've got a camera on it. I'll be able to see exactly what happened. When I get back to Australia. The next email said... Well, it's dropped. Later that day, dear Professor Mainston, I've got bad news. Unfortunately, you will not be able to see this because the system failed. (laughs) The camera went out. The camera went out? We don't have this on record. (laughs) Come on. That uh, was one of my saddest moments, I might say. Uh, But right now, the pitch is getting ready to give birth to another drop. And this time there are three cameras. Three webcams on there. And this is what Josh was showing me on the internet. This dangling little almost that all these people are watching. People from China, South America, Inuit people way up in the north of Canada. So everybody's waiting. Everybody wants to be the person who sees the pitch fall. And I gotta admit, I've been checking this thing online. Really? Like what? You like watching grass grow? I don't know. It's something. It's more than suspense. I think that this is—it's about time scale, is what it's about. We don't really have that many opportunities to interact with things that happen on these two very, very different time scales simultaneously. Huh? Do you see what he means? Yeah, because you know you can, you're in this funny situation. You wait slower than you know how. For something to take place that's faster than you can, you know... Catch. Exactly. So you're playing at the very edges of what you know how to do. But not if you catch it. Then you get this glimpse into this world that's usually... Unknowable. Exactly. So for the next hour, 
we're going to mess around with this idea because, you know, we're humans. We live in a human scale. But we've got a bunch of stories that are going to ask us to stretch that scale. To the breaking point. Yeah. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. Today on Radiolab, Speed. Where things keep getting faster and then faster again and then faster and 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 faster. Until we get to the fastest thing in the universe. Yes. And stop it. Cold. Okay, so let's set the baselines uh, here. Mm-hmm. How fast are are we? You mean like how fast do we run? I mean, how fast do we interact with the world around us? Uh, how fast do we taste things? How fast do we feel something, see something, respond? Hello. Oh, hello. Hey there. Hey. How do we sound? That sounds better. Much better. Excellent. That's Carl Zimmer, of course, science writer. Regular around here. <laughs> and he told us that question you just asked, how yeah. fast do people, humans, process the world? That question popped up in a really big way around 1850 with the invention of the telegraph. Because suddenly you could send a message across the country almost instantly. I mean, if, if you're in New York and you want to send a message to Chicago, Albert, send money. Stop. It's going to take about a quarter of a second for that message to get there. Coming telegraph for Robert Crowich. That's 790 miles in a quarter second. Now that's. Really fast. In fact, if you do the math, uh, 790 times 4 times 60 times 60, it's 11 million miles an hour. That's amazingly fast. So fast, in fact, that some people, when they first use the telegraph, they just refuse to believe that it was real. Because in 1850, you're doing, oh, 35, 40 miles an hour on a horse, 60 maybe on a steam engine, up to 80. You're not living too fast. No. (laughs) But more importantly for our story, the telegraph got people thinking about us, about our bodies. Right. Because, you know, nerves and telegraph wires are remarkably similar. Nerves are long and skinny. They carry electricity from one place to another. Just like telegraph wires. So naturally, people wanted to know, well, if telegraph wires can do millions of miles an hour, well, what about our nerves? How fast are they? Exactly. And so... One day, a German guy... A biologist named Hermann von Helmholtz... Took a frog... Because their neurons are kind of like ours. And basically what he did was he... He hooked some wires up to one of the frog's muscles. Now, this was, I should tell you, a dead frog. But he sent an electrical jolt through the muscle, and then using a very fancy timer, he was able to determine... That the signal was going down the length of the uh, frog muscle at a speed of... 27 meters per second. What, what is that um, in miles per hour? meters per second. Um, yeah. Let's see. I can uh, Google, actually. it's. I love Google. Um, 27 meters per second is 60.3973 miles per hour. 60.3 miles per hour. Wait, this is a frog. Is this the same speed in us? Yes. 60 miles an hour? That seems so yeah. slow. So, That's, so, yeah. What's the name of the Jamaican runner, the fastest guy in the world? Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt. So Usain Bolt is running at half the speed of his nervous system. Okay, but but bear in mind, actually, I mean, uh, there's a big range of speeds of your neurons, and actually Usain Bolt is much faster than some of your neurons. I mean, there are some neurons that only go about a mile an hour. Which ones are those? those? Ironically, some of them are from the reward centers of your brain. Chocolate travels slowly? Yeah, relatively slowly. Uh, What about pain? That would, that would be fast, I imagine. Yeah, you'd think so. But pain actually runs kind of slowly, I was surprised to learn. He says it can be as slow as 1.3 miles an hour. Wait a second. So if I put my hand near a candle and then I go, ouch, shouldn't that happen very fast? Look, I mean, if you were like 70 miles tall, this might be a problem. Okay. <laughs> but still, I mean, 
what if we just take a really ordinary example, like Robert looking at the desk in front of him and uh, grabbing that pen? What's involved Yeah, there? well, I mean, you just essentially need to kind of walk through this brain. You start at the eye. Okay, so uh, the eye takes the light that's reflected off the pen, turns it into a little electrical signal, and then sends that deep into the middle of the brain. Takes a uh, couple hundredths of a second. Bounces around for a bit, and then within... A few more hundredths of a second. The signal has made it. All the way back to the rear end of the brain, where you start processing vision. But this is just the beginning. Right, now you gotta like figure out what you're seeing. So our jolt is off again. This time toward the middle of the brain and then down toward the bottom. To these other regions. That start to decode the signal. The first visual region is called V1. Next up. V2. V4 and so on. And they're going to sharpen the image, make out contrasts, edges. And then electricity goes back towards the front of the brain. After, let's see, another tenth of a second or so. We finally get to a place where we think. Oh, that, that's a pen. We haven't gotten yet to, I want it. Exactly. For that to happen, the electricity has to jump from one part of the front of the brain to another and another before you can finally say, That's a nice pen. I could use a pen. (laughs) (laughs) And we're still not done. You know, then, then, then. Little jolt. Heads north. To sort of the top of your brain. So we've we've gone from your eyes to the back of your brain, around up to the front of your brain again. And now we're up to the top of your head where you set up motor commands. And then you can grab the pen. Christ. So, I mean, (laughs) you add all this up and, and, and what are we talking about here? About a quarter of a second. Quarter of a second. It feels like one month later, Robert's hand <laughs> begins slowly to move toward yeah, the object right. of his desire. <laughs> a quarter of a second. So that's the same amount of time it takes a telegraph to send a message from New York to Chicago. Yeah, so your eye to your hand, New York, Chicago. Oh, man. The sad truth, says Carl, is that our neurons, when it comes to communicating and, and sending signals, our neurons are... They're terrible, actually. I mean, compared to our, you know, broadband networks. Particularly because when one neuron bumps into the next one, there's actually a little space between them. So the signal to get across has got to jump. And then jump to the next one. And jump and then jump. It's kind of like doing hurdles. It's not smooth. And the spooky part about this slowness, says Carl, the deeper thought here is that if you think about it, because we have this built-in delay, in processing the outside world? Everything that I'm experiencing already happened. You know how, like, you look out at the stars and you think, oh, that light's been traveling for thousands, millions of years to get to me, and what's happening on that star or the planet around that star right now? Does it even still exist? Mm-hmm. Um, you can say that about everything around you, you know, because, I mean, by the time that you become aware of something in front of you, it's been sitting there for a while, relatively speaking. I'm stuck in the past. But it's, it sounds like if you want to be in the moment, then what you do is you stare up at the sun and you let the light just be light entering your eyes and you don't think anything about the light. You don't try to comprehend the light. You just let the light be light. And that's as close as you're gonna to get to now. Yeah. Well, you're looking at old light. Uh, but yeah, it's, eight, it's eight minutes old because of a star. <laughs> no, it's old light. Even if you switch, you know, even if you switch on the light and you're looking at the light bulb across the room, 
it's old light because it had to go from your eyes through your brain to you to be aware that there was light there. Mm. So what I would suggest is that you close your eyes and you stop thinking about, you know, the chair you're sitting in and just focus on your own thoughts because th that's the fastest stuff you've got. It's right there. You don't have to wait for it to be delivered into your brain. It's already in your brain. So I think your thoughts are the fastest things that you can experience. So my fastest thought that I could ever have is, where are my keys? You've got to have faster thoughts than that. What's a faster one? <laughs> this is an interesting question, though. <laughs> it, I, mean, I think it would be non-narrative. I don't think it can be a keys or something. I think it would just be like a, oh. Someone has thought about this. What it wasn't me, because uh, I had no <laughs> idea. <laughs> Don't you think somebody has an answer for us on this? Uh, hello, hello. Hello. Somebody somewhere. I'm here. In fact, we found a guy. Are we, are we recording right now? We are, yeah. His name is Seth Horowitz. I'm the... Uh, He's a neuroscientist. Author of The Universal Sense, How Hearing Shapes the Mind. So we were talking... Uh, with and we ran Seth through the question, you know, if we're all trapped in the past by the slowness of our nervous system, what would be the most present, the most in the now that we could be. Well, if you And he actually disagreed with Carl's guess. He said, even if you think the simplest thought that it is possible to think. It's probably still going to be on the order of a quarter of a second, half oh. second. Oh, man. You have to get away from the conscious brain. No thinking, no seeing. Hearing is the fastest sense because it's mechanical. It normally operates on the millisecond range, the thousandth of a second. Huh. A sudden loud noise activates a very specialized circuit from your ear to your spinal neurons. You mean it bypasses the brain? Yeah, it's the startle wow. circuit. If you suddenly hear a loud noise within 50 milliseconds, it's 50 thousandths of a second, so you're talking 20 times faster than cognition, your body jumps, will begin the release of adrenaline. No consciousness involved. It's five neurons, and it takes 50 milliseconds. 50 milliseconds, so... So you're already getting into a faster, much faster paradigm by using sound. So if we're going to jolt ourselves as close to the present as possible then we'd have to play a really loud noise. Right. Like, wait for it. This. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that was annoying, um, no, I know. But look, think of what we just did together. We were all in the moment, in the present tense, together. Well, not quite, not as we now understand it. We were just shy, just an itsy bit shy of the moment. Well, close, but enough, but enough time, if I spoke fast enough, for me to say thank you to Carl Zimmer, thank you to Seth Horowitz, and now go to break. There's no way you could even form the th of thank you in 50 milliseconds. <laughs> but I tell you what, in this next in this next uh, segment, uh, we're going to make 50 milliseconds feel like 50 years. Oh, that's a really, really nice promo there. <laughs> That'll make everybody <laughs> lean in. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a terrible, a terrible promo. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> We will amaze you by slowing down time so that you will find a millisecond generous. Ge you will be you will surprise yourself in all kinds of ways if you just stay listening to this program. Believe me, right in there, we know. Good save. Start of message. Hi, this is uh, Joshua Thor calling from the middle of the Congolese rainforest. This is Carl Zimmer. I'm going to read you the credits. Um, I'm going to uh, let's see. I'm going to read you the credits slow and then fast. So, um, 
Radiolab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Sloan.org. Okay, well, I hope that helped. See you guys.